Some of you heard me share the story before about when my wife and I arrived in Scotland for the first time, and we were just adjusting to a different culture. And I remember we read a book on cultural adjustments. It was specifically for missionaries and those living moving overseas, and I, I understood it in principle, and it was still a shock to experience it in practice. And we got there, I think, around a Monday or so, and so we spent that whole week trying to adjust to people who spoke with a different accent than we did, that used words differently than we did, and that just listed and described things in very different ways. And I remember, and I've shared before, I remember on a Thursday or so, we literally were just kind of just feeling the weight of the, of, of the cultural adjustment. We could not tell if this detergent had bleach in it or not. And that just kind of reflects that kind of everything had a level of complexity. And we just felt the weight of that. We just knew we weren't at home. And then we went to church on Sunday morning. We lived about a mile and a quarter from our church. We lived there three years, no TV. You had to pay a TV tax per TV in your house. Uh, and we didn't have money for a TV tag. We didn't have money for a TV, uh, but certainly not the annual tax. And we didn't have a car for three years. Anytime we drove anywhere, it's because we hired a car. Not rented, hired. And we would get up on Sunday morning and we'd have enough time to walk. Actually, it was beautiful. I mean, I was, one of my favorite parts of Scotland was walking everywhere. You just see your community differently when you're not just driving, but when you're walking, it's roads and sidewalks and back little trails through a particular garden past a neighbor's house. And it was beautiful because I remember that first Sunday as we're walking to church, you just see all these other Christians. Like, again, not like our culture, many people don't go to church at all, but there are those leaving their homes doing what we were doing. They were walking to church. And several times you're just connecting with your own people in the church. Oh, are you going to St. Andrew's Baptist Church? Yeah, do you know where it is? We've never been there before. Yeah, come, come this way. And we got to church, and same thing, different accents, different process. Different, different, different looking clothes and people. And then they started to sing. And when you sing, you just can't pick up accents as well. And they sang a classic hymn that we knew well. And I just remember crying like a baby. They're thinking, what is this big American dude weeping in row four? But I just wept because for the first time in that week, I felt like I was at home. It's because I was. Because even as we spoke about, just as we took the Lord's Supper a few minutes ago, while I was actually a citizen of the United States of America, I was only there on a student visa. And while I don't know of any Scottish blood running through my veins, I do know that the blood of Christ united me to St. Andrew's Baptist Church and its 103 members more deeply than my own national citizenship and my own family German-Swedish bloodline, because I was a child of God adopted into his family. That is an eternal location. And that reality was present among this sweet Scottish Baptist church that we attended for three years. It's one thing to understand that. It's another thing to try to live that out. And we've been talking about the church the last few weeks. And even just going back a few weeks, we've talked about what the church is, and why the church exists, but now we need to answer the question, how does the church function? 
And I want to tell you, its identity, rooted in God and his mission to the world, actually explains that the church has a job description. And there may be no better place to see this than in the text that Joe just read for us just now, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. In fact, even behind me on the screen in due course, you will see a job description listed for the church that I want to talk through with you this morning. But look with me at the text that, that was read just a few minutes ago. Look at that language in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Do you see those four descriptions? Now, it makes sense. You hear that now in the letter of 1 Peter written to a multi-ethnic international collection of people in the first century, and that makes sense. But if you were to flip your Bible back to Exodus chapter 19, you would actually find the same statement written there. That this language was used at the very beginning of God forming his people in the Old Covenant, and it has now been fulfilled by Christ and therefore applied in the new covenant to the local church. That the story of God's people, the church, goes to the very beginning of the biblical story. In fact, what you see in Genesis 12, maybe, maybe we just kind of miss some of these key significant texts in the beginning of God's story, but Genesis 1 to 11 is its own kind of unit where you just see the brokenness and fallenness of the world leading to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 where literally humanity united itself and says, we can do this God thing on our own. We want to make glory for our name. And judgment comes and God says, it's not going to be. And you're like, what is God going to do? And then in Genesis 12, right at the beginning, you see this amazing thing. God forms and calls forth a people for himself, and he gives them a command that is drenched in his own promise to fulfill it. Which kid here wouldn't like that? Your parents command you to clean your room, and I promise I'll do it for you. That'd be a pretty good deal. That's how radical Genesis 12 is. And if you're not careful, you blow right past it. But you're, you get through Genesis 11, you're like, Lord, you made this world good. You had purpose for this world. What are you going to do? And Genesis 12 gives that glimpse where God says, almost in threefold emphasis, like holy, 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 he says, I will, I will, I will. I command you to receive the gift of grace I'm going to give you as I form you into a people of my own. And that is developed in the early part of the biblical story so much so that by the time you get to Exodus, God with, with Moses and the law and the mountain is establishing his people. And this language that you see in 1 Peter 2.9 is a language he uses that now is magnified through Christ and applied to you and me. So if you want to answer the question, how does the church function? I think 1 Peter 2.9 gives it to you. In 1 Peter 2.9, there are four responsibilities given to every local church reflecting those four phrases or those four descriptions. You are to function as a chosen race. You are to function as a royal priesthood. You are to function as a holy nation. And you are to function as a people for his own possession, 
Let's talk about those four responsibilities each briefly this morning. But before we do, let me just pray. Father, open our eyes to the wondrous things of your law. Teach us to see what is true and right and good. And more than that, more than just our minds, form our hearts to bend toward your will as it is revealed in Scripture, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Function number one, the church functions as a ministry of presence. Not presence, kids, like gifts, but presence, like being in a place. You might be thinking, what does that do to, why, why is that connected to, to a chosen race? Well, race refers to a people from a common lineage. Nowadays, the word race is loaded with division and even certain political complexity. But I want you to think of it just in its more simple sense of people from a common lineage. And even as we talked about during the Lord's Supper, in light of Christ's death and his offering of blood, we, through him, belong now to God and therefore to one another. Our identity is rooted in the new creation work of the cross. So what you began to see in the early Christian movement was that Christians were finding their identity in God and living out the Christian life in radical ways that became noticed around the Roman Empire. In fact, in the first and second century, Romans didn't quite know what to do with Christians. In fact, kind of like ants, they were annoyed that they were just showing up in every place. Listen to what one church historian describes about the impression Romans have of Christians. Tertullian says this, the outcry, this is, what, this is the complaint, the outcry is that the state, Rome, the Roman Empire, is filled with Christians. They are in the fields, they are in the citadels, they're soldiers, they're military, they are in the islands, both sexes, every age and condition, even high rank, are passing over to the profession of the Christian faith. They're like, we've got a global pandemic called Christianity. And masks and vaccination don't seem to be stopping it. People in every corner of the world, for the Roman Empire, that was the world. People in every location, it wasn't just particular age groups, it wasn't just particular gender, it wasn't even just particular rank or socioeconomic status. People in the military, people doing labor, people outside of the main Roman area, but in the edge of the Roman commonwealth were everywhere professing Christ as Lord. And notice how Tertullian's statement, one of a boast really, is how Christians had a ministering presence in every part of the culture. See, that's one of the functions of the church, to be a ministry of presence, to be a chosen race. That does what? That inhabits the local community with gospel intentionality as a holy temple in the Lord. We are an embassy of one particular race, a new race called Christian. Now, when you think about being a ministry of presence, there's some bad options out there. I give those in bullet points to you. We've given you these categories before, but they're worth mentioning 
Again, the first three are unhealthy and imbalanced views of what it means to be a ministry of presence. The purity from approach seeks to avoid the world. That's why the language is fortification. If they can just escape, right? They feel successful if they've not been in the world. Praise be to God that that was not Jesus' approach. No worry, Father, I won't even do the incarnation. That way I can be fortified in heaven. The defense against approach seeks to defeat the world. Hence the language of domination. Crush it, defeat it, culture war. But again, thankful that God allowed the son to come first as a priest before he came second as a judge. I'm glad that the order of the comings wasn't reversed. How about the relevance to approach? They seek to join the world. That's why it's called accommodation. They do wonderful at connecting with culture. They just have a hard time confronting or converting. What model seems ideal is faithful presence. Notice James Davison Hunter calls that the incarnation approach. It matches the ministry of Christ. To seek to be in the world, but not of it. Sent to go and bear fruit. You might be asking, okay, I kind of like this chosen race language. It's in the Bible. I like this ministry of presence, but what does it look like? Well, I don't think it's a program. I think it's more posture. I think it starts by avoiding the fortification, domination, and accommodation approach and moving toward a faithful presence within It must become embedded in the way we just naturally and instinctively think and live. We live as sent missionaries. We think of our place as the old church word, and I like this old church word. We think of our community as our parish. We're ministering in our parish. My my friend Eric Hesse, he and I were in seminary together. He, He went to... He was a pastor in southern, or southern Wisconsin for about 11 years. Right now he's serving in Berlin, Germany, as a missionary. And you move from Richland Center, Wisconsin, to Berlin, that's a big change. In Richland Center, you can agree, or I mean, he's actually a Cincinnati Reds fan, probably not Milwaukee Brewers, but he's a Wheaton grad. He resonates with the people where he's at. Same citizenship in the same country, maybe some of the same sports likes, some of the same hobbies. He's a big fly fisherman. What do you do when you go to a foreign country? You don't even know the language. He had to learn German so he could minister to the people. I read his updates or talk to him from time to time, and I hear how every time he literally leaves his home, he is in this missionary mindset. I wonder if for the Christian that is part of our calling, collectively and individually, to be missionaries in the place we're called. When you're going on your walks, do you pray for your neighbors? When you're driving to work, do you pray for the school you drive by, the kids you see on the bus in front of you, the couple sitting in the car beside you at intersection? When you pull up in your workplace, do you pray, Lord, help me, Help me to be a light in the darkness in this place. Do you feel the responsibility of caring for your parish? Individually and part of this corporate church 
Second function, the church functions as ministering priests. The language there, that second descriptor in verse 9 of 1 Peter 2 is a royal priesthood. You might think that, wait a second, priesthood? How, how is that us? Let me hear, give you the definition. The church is called to serve as God's ambassadors in the community and spiritual ministers in the congregation under the high priesthood of Christ. Priesthood's a good Bible word. The royal priesthood was always God's design. The hereditary bloodline in the Old Testament now established through Christ the high priest. All Christians share in the priestly ministry of Jesus. They are under priests, under shepherds. I give you in those bullet points there under number two, three different senses. Let's start with the bottom one. In a restricted sense, this priesthood ministry is established through the office of pastor elder. That right now, that's just 10 individuals who serve in that office for this particular church. But there's also an individual sense where every Christian is the priesthood of all believers. We're excited to introduce Kurt to you on the 24th of October, our youth pastor candidate, but know full well his participation here is ultimately because of the priesthood of all believers, a doctrine that declares that the congregation has an authority ministering under the authority of Christ. That you should be ministering to one another and caring for one another and sending cards to one another, shepherding one another. You don't have to be a pastor elder to be shepherding people. This should be happening institutionally where we have people setting up and reminding you to send cards or setting up a visitation team or helping minister to some of our children. Like tons of programs can do that, but it should also happen organically as you simply do the ministry of Christ that he calls you to do as a brother or sister. Finally, there's the corporate sense. This is us as a church as a whole. That's how we care for one another as a whole. Yesterday, my family got to participate in dropping off some furniture to a family in Rockford whose house was burned down. A, a, a sister in this church, a congregant, had a connection to this family Passed it along to the church. Several different families in the church gave certain, like one of the things that was in the back of my truck yesterday was a, a dining room kitchen table and four chairs that I picked up from one church family's house. And Roscoe picked up something else from somebody in Beloit and drove down to Rockford and dropped it off. We show up at this house and there's this mom and all these little highly energetic kids doing somersaults in the grass. Right there, just off Haskell, Haskell Road down in Rockford on the west side. And I saw these kids, and I saw all the energy, and I thought about that mom. And we had a bunch of kids with us, and they were excited to see our kids. They played together and laughed, helped carry stuff into the home or where we were storing it. But notice what that was. That was our church body, collectively, without even necessarily even knowing who this family is. Whether it was... A sister who hears of a need and connects it to the church. It was people who donated items, etc., to care for them. Just common grace. Just sharing of resources. Because we're an embassy that wants to live out that kind of hospitality and generosity in our community. That corporate sense means that the church, with other churches is a priest among the nations, sending our missionaries. We spend over $100,000 every year, money you give 
that this church goes immediately to God's work in the world. That's a lot of money. Money spent to administer things happening here. That's part of our corporate responsibility. That even your offering is part of that. That is part of your worship of God individually, but that's part of your assignment as part of the priesthood of all believers and the corporate priests of a local church. Because the church is not a gathering of consumers. It's a weekly meeting and send-off for missionary priests with Jesus as our high priest. So there's the first two. The church functions as a ministry of presence. Second, the church functions as ministering priests. Third, the church functions as ministering pilgrims. Here's a definition, and it's rooted in that phrase, a holy nation. The church is to oversee the congregation's allegiance to Christ and his kingdom as the international, more than just American, and eschatological, that's a big word for today, meaning more than just this generation, people of God. We are belonging to a people of all the nations throughout all of time. Holy before nation in verse 9 means set apart, unique in all the world. The church is part of God's kingdom. Look at verse 11 in our text. Do you think of yourselves this way? Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What's he mean there? He means this isn't your home. Whether it was the Roman Empire in the first century or the state line area in the 21st. It's not your ultimate home. The church is an embassy of the kingdom of God. And even when Laura and I walked into St. Andrew's Baptist Church back in that end of the summer 2002, we walked to an embassy where even though we were not citizens of that country, we, we, we only had a student visa. We could get no recourse to public funds. We, no, we have none of those benefits that a normal born citizen could have. When we were part of that church, we were welcomed as full members and participated in all the benefits of the kingdom embassy because we didn't belong to that earthly nation, but we belonged to God's heavenly kingdom. And that was an outpost. And if we had, if we had St. Andrew's Baptist Church, it would be really cool to have about 25 Ians all of a sudden show up at the church and a lot of people named McClellan and there they'd be asking, where is Haggis during fellowship time? If we could have about 100 people from St. Andrew's Baptist Church show up on some Sunday morning, besides asking them to do all the public reading of Scripture because the accents would be pretty cool, it would be pretty awesome to literally have people from different nations all worshiping together, equally belonging, because in this place we're in an embassy. So what's that look like? It looks like this, that a disciple of Jesus needs to think carefully about their dual citizenship and their appropriate allegiance. If we do not make God's kingdom great, our earthly country will take its place. 
And I could have said that same statement in any country in the world. I could have been at St. Andrew's Baptist Church and made the same statement. And I can guarantee you, if Mike Ray, retired chemistry professor from Oxford, who retired in St. Andrew's, is still one of the preaching elders, I guarantee you, he is saying that to his Scottish and English brothers and sisters all the time. If the church has a priestly role, brothers and sisters, in this way it has to have a prophetic role too, especially in this cultural moment. A sister in our church sends me, I call them prayer emails once in a while. They're communicating to me thoughts, reflections, but they're written in the form of a prayer. I asked her permission to read a sentence or two. This is what she sent me this week after last week's growth hour where these kind of things were coming up in our discussion. She said this, this morning my reading was Jeremiah 1-3 to and I saw the American church laid out in all of its rebellion. Holy, awesome Father, forgive us. We are every bit as stiff-necked and rebellious as Israel. Show us what it looks like to be grateful for our country without nationalizing our faith. Those are her words. Show us what it looks like to be grateful for our country without nationalizing our faith. Why is there a danger when we nationalize our faith? Because we are actually citizens of a holy nation. And because, as verse 11 says, we live as sojourners and exiles waiting for the kingdom. Fourth and last, the church functions as a ministry of proclamation. Look at, the, look, look at the, there, that middle of verse 9. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, and fourth, a people for his own possession. That's covenant language. That's the marital language that drenches the Bible, that God belongs to us and we belong to God. It drips of ownership and purpose. In fact, right after that, look at how verse 9 ends. A people for his own possession, so that you may do what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So what's a ministry of proclamation look like? It means that we administer the institutional forms of God's covenant people for the work of the gospel. God has chosen the church to be that institution that administers in word and deed his work in the world. Just as the family of God, just as the family is God's common grace institution, so the church is God's special grace institution. And look at those bullet points I gave you. There's three marks of the church. Here are the symptoms, the traits, the practices of the church. The preaching and teaching of God's word is a reflection of Christ's prophetic ministry in our midst. Thus saith the Lord. The administration of the ordinances which we partook in today is the priestly ministry of Christ among us. And the ministerial care and oversight of the church, shepherding, authority, even Sadly, but helpfully, things like church discipline is part of the kingly office of Christ, his royal ministry. Notice how the church's ministry is really the ministry of Christ. He's the high priest. He's the prophet, priest, and king. He's the, true, he's the good shepherd. We are simply under shepherds, individually and corporately. So what's the job description of Hope Evangelical Free Church. Oh, here's your purpose. 
to minister to God's people and the world. Who's your supervisor? Report to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your working hours, I wish I could say it was nine to five. This is an all of life position. Qualifications. It would be nice if you could type 90 words a minute, but here are the two main ones you need. That you've been sanctified in Christ. You've been called to be saints together. Responsibilities. A ministry of presence. Ministering priests. Ministering pilgrims. And a ministry of proclamation. Every Christian needs to know and help fulfill the duties in their local church. Every Christian does. This is our church's job description. And it takes all of us, not just one of us, all of us to fulfill these duties. If you want to know, as we often ask, what is God calling us to? I don't know about whom you should marry or what college you should go to or when you should retire or if you should change careers or what you should do with your house. Those things are the secret will of God. But there's a general will of God that is clearly revealed in Scripture, and it is this job description. So what are you called to do, Christians? You are called to be ministers of presence, ministering priests, ministering pilgrims, and ministers of proclamation in word and deed through your local church so that the world, let's narrow it in, so that this parish will hear of the beauty of Jesus, will be cared for, when little children who lost their dining room table have a new one that they can dance in their yard about because people from Hope Church gave up theirs. So that your neighbors and friends will be prayed for even if they don't know it. Why? Because you are doing the ministry of Christ that he commanded and promises to help you do. We're going to end worshiping God with our hearts, but let's close time in the Word now with a word of prayer. Father, you are a good God to us. We thank you for your kindness and your mercy. Your compassion to us goes beyond what we can even fathom. And Lord, we receive this job description as commanded from your Word. We want to fulfill it. And thank you for inviting us to share in your work, yet even still promising that you would fulfill it as you promised long ago, so we hold to those promises. And Father, I pray that you would help us as Hope Evangelical Free Church live like a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people who belong to you. Father, as we close our service with these sung words. May they be a response of our heart to your goodness and to your grace, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.